A few short months ago, Democrats were upbeat, believing fervently that they had a decent chance of beating the historical odds and retaining control of the United States Congress. The Supreme Court Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade had energized women across the country, while President Biden scored some major legislative successes, most notably a climate change bill that they a bit deceptively labeled the Inflation Reduction Act. But today, with the midterms less than two weeks away, a new gloom hangs over the party's prospects. The polls consistently show rising prices, the economy, and crime to be the dominant issues preoccupying voters, playing to the GOP advantage. Where do things now stand? We'll talk to Democratic pollster Mark Melman to get his state-by-state breakdown, and then we'll check in with Republican consultant Brian Robinson on two showcase races in Georgia on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So, look, there's a lot of moving parts to the midterm puzzle that we'll want to talk about, but I think we have to start out with that Fetterman-Oz debate Tuesday night in Pennsylvania. It was the single most painful debate I've ever watched. It was clear that John Fetterman has not fully recovered from his stroke. He was struggling to answer questions. He was struggling to find words. And it clearly is going to put his health front and center in that race. That said, I thought Oz, you know, by, I mean, he's getting some praise for not going full frontal on Fetterman's health issues, but he consistently kept attacking Fetterman on crime, on other issues, calling him radical. I thought he overplayed his hand and came off as too aggressive when it would have been a lot smarter for him to just, you know, lean back, you know, talk about himself uh, and let people watch the obvious, which is that the Democratic candidate Fetterman was clearly struggling. Yeah, I thought, you know, clearly it was a shaky performance. And uh, and that's a problem on, on a couple of levels. Uh, on, on the one hand, you know, for those who have not been following Fetterman's health condition closely, and particularly, you know, who don't understand the intricacies of coming back from a, from a stroke. I mean, it's, it's going to raise questions about whether he's uh, fit uh, to serve in, in the question, and it will shake confidence in him for people who might have been inclined uh, to support him in the first place. It also is a problem just in the debate itself because it made it harder, not impossible because Fetterman did have some pretty good retorts, but it made it harder for him to you know, respond uh, to return fire when Oz was leveling these uh, attacks on him on policy. I agree with you. I think um, that Oz was was too aggressive, and I think he missed an opportunity to look magnanimous. Uh, he he could have found a moment to to actually praise Fetterman for coming back uh, from this uh, very very difficult health challenge. And just one point on you know you you may have set the expectations. Uh, a little bit too high. I mean, the, the reality is, you know, you're not going to come back from that kind of st- stroke 
in the short amount of time that he's had to recover. You know, he's got another year probably uh, before he can fully recover or recover to the extent that he'll be able to. Last thing I'll say is this is a, a very late debate, and there are already hundreds of thousands of people who voted in Pennsylvania. Like half a million, 500,000. Yeah, and, and, yeah. yeah, and it's unclear how many people are undecided, how many people can still be persuaded. So we don't know uh, what kind of an impact this will have on the on the outcome uh, at the end of the day. And that being said, Oz actually did, oddly enough, to, in a very, you know, kind of rapid fire, hyper aggressive, hyper articulate sort of debate, did hand up one moment that will be used repeatedly against him in the next two weeks. And that's when he said that abortion should be decided by women, doctors, and local political leaders. Yeah, that was um, a new formulation. Exactly. <laughs> right. And and I fully expect a clip of that or, you know, that phrase to be repeated over and over and over again until people in Pennsylvania are sick of hearing it for the next two weeks. Yeah, you really want as, your state you really want you, your state legislator in, in the exactly. in the hospital room with you. Like, I'd like my local political leader in with me now yeah. when I make this decision. Uh, yeah. He was um, trying to make the point that he was against the federal legislation being sponsored by Lindsey yeah, Graham. But, it was but, just, that, it but was, I agree that was, was not just, the best way it was to not the best way to phrase it. And, and against that, of course, Fetterman did was clearly struggling in the debate and having a hard time, you know, kind of dealing with the the rapid fire, you know, uh, nature of a political debate. You know, I think the phrase is there was a, a he had a pretty high cognitive load last night and he didn't handle it with the kind of the intense articulation and and kind of rapid you know, that you normally expect a politician to be able to do. Yeah. I mean, look, to the extent that this is about issues, people know where these both these people stand. And if you're voting on the issues, you probably are not going to be persuaded by this debate. That's why I thought that Oz, you know, misplayed the hand that was given him by Fetterman's poor performance by repeatedly hammering Fetterman on the issues. That's not why people have to the extent that there are persuadables, people who have doubts about Fetterman, it's because of his health. And Oz could have just let the debate play out on the, on that term. And I think he would have gained more than he, he did. Okay. But, but in anyway. terms of the, in terms of the bigger picture, we're, yeah. we're less than two weeks out uh, from the And this uh, could be the race that determines who this, controls the Senate. Well, the, you know, well, Pennsylvania, the well, well, Georgia. The Democrats, they've got to flip Pennsylvania to have any real hope of uh, holding on to the Senate. And as we've talked about, I think, before on this podcast, the zeitgeist has definitely shifted uh, from, you know, sort of uh, mid-late summer where Democrats looked like they were making something of a comeback to now where it looks like we've kind of returned to the more you know traditional midterm dynamics. The question that I have, um, and would be interested in hearing your views on this, is you know are we talking about a real wave election, a, a tidal wave, um, or are we talking about you know a maybe a clear Republican victory, taking back the House and potentially taking back the Senate, even if it's by a small small margin? I'm not I'm not sure how this is going to play out in in those terms. Yeah, obviously, given the fundamentals, which is a volatile economy, rising crime rate, and the fact that it's a midterm, uh, you, you would expect a wave. And the fact that the Democrats have even managed to kind of 
keep the prospect of holding the Senate and the prospect of not losing quite as many House seats as you would anticipate, I think in some people's book would be pretty remarkable. Uh, but on an absolute level, it certainly does look like the Democrats are going to lose the House, stand a pretty strong chance of losing the Senate and setting up a painful two years for the Biden administration. A couple of yeah. arguments I've heard about why this you know, may be a, just a bad election, a bad midterm election uh, for Democrats, but not a catastrophe is and, and you know and, and not a wave along the lines of you know Newt Gingrich in you know 1994 or Obama uh, Bush losing in in 2006 Obama in in 2010 uh, it was a couple of factors one we are just far more polarized uh, than we were back then and so uh, voters are more firmly entrenched um, in their respective ideological uh, camps. And there are just fewer swing voters. But the other thing, and this is something that you're an expert on, is because of uh, redistricting and, and gerrymandered uh, districts, there's just fewer competitive seats out there to get those kinds of margins. Yeah, exactly. And and the the you know, and, and the other thing that's that's important to remember is that, and this is largely uncovered, is that many state legislatures are also up right now. And right now we've got a situation where close to 33 or two-thirds of the state legislatures are Republican-controlled with Republican governors. And whether or not we flip to an even larger portion of state legislatures being controlled by um, the Republican Party as a result that of is gerrymandering. A really, that's a really big deal that, that we don't give as much attention to as, as is due because so much, you know, because of all the gridlock in, in Washington and the fact that Congress, although this past session was different, uh, but generally speaking, Congress doesn't get that much done. Policy is made in state legislatures. And beyond that, they also increasingly control the uh, election infrastructure, you know, and, and have the ability to... Let's not forget the upcoming Supreme Court case involving whether state legislatures can determine on their own who wins elections uh, as a, with no review from state courts or how state how states conduct their elections, right? And yeah. uh, that makes the legislative outcomes even more significant. But I just want to make one point I've made before on we are basing all this everything we're saying on our reading of poll numbers. And can we remember that yeah. in 2020, the polls were consistently wrong? Now, they were wrong because they undercounted Trump voters and Republican voters, uh, which is why so many people were surprised by, A, why the uh, presidential race was as close as it was when most people were expecting a Biden substantial victory, and two, the Republican gains in the Congress, in the House in particular, uh, which nobody saw coming. Now, that said, I also wonder whether uh, the pollsters might be undercounting um, the backlash over the abortion decision and that there may be sort of, you know, more Democratic votes there than the pollsters are picking up. All I know is 
I am one of those, and I think a large number fit into this category, who are completely unpollable. I only use my cell phone. I do not answer phone calls from people I don't know. If I pick one up and it happens to be a pollster or a robocall or anything, I hang up immediately. So the pollsters have no idea of capturing what people like me are thinking about the election. That said... <laughs> There's nobody like you, Mike, so um, right. I'm Maybe not sure so. uh, your participation I, would make any difference anyway. <laughs> <All right>. That <laughs> said, we've got our first guest, a pollster. So, uh, and, a, and a pretty good one historically, uh, Mark Melman. So uh, let's get to it. All right. We now have with us veteran Democratic pollster, Mark Melman. Mark, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Veteran just means old, right? <laughs> we're all we're all veterans we're all veterans at least he didn't call you a grizzled uh, <laughs> i haven't used that in an introduction yet but you gave me an idea for the next one all right so we got midterms coming up uh in uh two weeks from today as we tape uh conventional wisdom is democrats had a good summer uh playing off the backlash to the Dobbs decision, doing away with Roe versus Wade on abortion and uh, Democratic successes, uh, getting some legislation passed, Inflation Reduction Act. But things have swung back in the Republican direction right now, polls showing uh, inflation and the economy far and away, the predominant issue that voters care about. Give us your take of where things are right now. Well, look, this, this was going to be a tough year. Uh, every midterm is tough, particularly first midterms, when the president's approval rating is where it is, when the economy is where it is. You're going to have difficulty if you're the party in power. The question is, how well can we do? There's still a lot of races to, to fall into place. I mean, the reality is, you're right, if you look at the national trends, trend towards Democrats a couple of months ago, a little bit back more in a Republican direction today. But that's working its way through individual races in a very uneven way. So we have a lot of Republicans that are still very vulnerable on choice issues, for example. We have a lot of voters that are still motivated on choice issues. We have a lot of Democrats who have important things to talk about with respect to the cost of living, like supporting Medicaid negotiating for cheaper drug prices, like supporting capping uh, out-of-pocket drug costs. And these are votes where Republicans were uniformly, unanimously on the other side. So. There's a lot of discussion yet to be had about the cost of living and who's really got the advantage there on choice. Clearly, Democrats have the advantage. No question, the national environment swung a little bit more in a Republican direction. But again, individual seats, yet to, we have yet to see that in full. Finally, one other point, the Senate, sort of on a different uh, dimension here. Uh, as uh, uh, Leader McConnell himself admitted, they have a very poor quality candidates running for the Senate on the Republican side. And Democrats, I think, are still well positioned to hold on to the Senate. So let me ask you, because I was struck by when you were describing the issues that cut well for Democrats right now, and you talk about prescription drug uh, benefits and related matters. Those are sort of traditional Democratic issues, right? It's what it's the that's the sort of playing field elections have been fought out on for decades now. 
But, you know, there's been an argument that's gotten a lot of traction that this is a unique year because of the threat to democracy, because of January 6th and the aftermath of uh, uh, 2020, all the election deniers who are running. That has been a Democratic talking point in Washington. But it's not clear to me that it's cutting with voters who are preparing to go to the polls right now. Uh, and it was striking to me, you didn't mention it as a Democratic issue. Is that the case, that it's not cutting? Have Democrats overplayed their hand in talking about those matters? Let me go back to prescription drugs and I'll come back to January 6th, I promise. One of the things that makes this election different with respect to issues like prescription drugs is there was an actual vote on it in the United States Congress. Democrats passed a bill that allows Medicare to negotiate cheaper rates. Democrats passed a bill that allowed that uh, caps uh, seniors' expenses uh, for prescription drugs. Republicans not only opposed it, they voted against it. And Republicans who weren't in office said they agreed with those Republicans who were in office who voted no. So this is not just an abstract discussion this time. It's a real vote. It's a real piece of legislation. Democrats on one side, Republicans on the other. And that's a clear and important distinction in a context where the cost of living generally is at the top of voters' minds and the cost of health care is a vitally important component of that cost of living. Having said that, let me come back to January 6th. There is no question that January 6th is critically important for the country as a whole, as far as I'm concerned. There's no question it's critically important for a lot of Democrats. There are a lot of swing voters who say, you know what? What happened was terrible. What happened was reprehensible. Donald Trump played a role in it, and it's to his demerit forever that he did. But many of these swing voters say, you know what? It's over and it happened. It doesn't really have much to do with this election, with the country going forward. That's a position I disagree with, but it is the position we hear from a lot of swing voters. I don't think Democrats overplayed their hand in any way, but I also don't think that this is going to be a major, it's January 6th, it's going to be a major decisive issue uh, in this election. It will be with some groups, it will be in some places, but not across the board. Let me ask you one one topic that you haven't raised yet, and which is Democratic senatorial candidates in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are getting hammered with right now is the crime issue. And it seems to be very potent. There seems to be evidence that in both Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, it's moving the needle against both of those candidates. What's your assessment of it as a um, issue in this coming election? And is it moving beyond just Wisconsin and Pennsylvania? Yeah, there's no question crime is an issue in a lot of places. Look, this happens when, when people see on TV on their nightly news about local crimes, about people being murdered, about carjackings, about other kinds of uh, violent crime, it becomes an issue, and it is an issue. Unfortunately, we had a few Democrats who went off the deep end on this issue after the George Floyd murder, talked about defunding the police, and we got a lot of Republicans replaying those, uh, those attack lines, even though very, very, very few, infinitesimally few Democrats are for defunding the police. Most Democrats are for increasing funding for police and also increasing the efforts to make sure the police do justice uh, when they're out on the on the uh, on the beat and and doing their jobs. But the bottom line is crime is an issue, and unfortunately, I think part of the far left created an opening for here here for Republicans that didn't need to be there. 
Mark, it seems to me that the uh, Democrats and the and the Biden administration had had more legislative success than just about any administration in, in recent memory. I mean, you talk about Mike mentioned the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. You had uh, the infrastructure bill that IRA, by the way, had you know huge, huge climate change components. You had the Chips Act. Uh, boosting the semiconductor industry. You had burn pit legislation for vets. I mean, just a ton. Guns, Victoria is putting in the chat right now. And I know that the administration has, Biden has been talking about that. I'm sure candidates have been talking about it on the stump. But there's a sense that it's just, it's not really having a huge effect. Why is that? I mean, is it the messenger? Is it the environment? Or can legislative successes only go so far in a midterm election? It's a great question. I think there are a number of factors at play here. First of all, I remember when I was young, there was a Barbara Streisand song from a movie, The Way We Were, you know, whenever we remember, remember the laughter, whenever we remember the way we were. People don't remember the laughter. They remember the fights. Okay, And the fights on these bills were internal between Democrats, among Democrats. And so what people remember is Democrats being divided on these issues, not Democrats successfully passing uh, these bills. So that's problem number one. People remember the fights and the fights were internal and it looked bad for Democrats. The second thing that's true is that many of these bills are an agglomeration of all kinds of different issues put together. And people have no way to process that. Bill, big bill passed doesn't tell you anything big fight between Republicans and Democrats over prescription drugs, that Democrats win, that would tell you something. But that's not the storyline. The storyline is big bi- Democrats finally passed big bill after lots of division. And so it's very hard for people to figure out what's really part of those bills. Third problem is, and it's a real problem, many of the provisions of these bills don't come into immediate effect. And so people aren't feeling it. They'll feel it next year. They'll feel it the year after. They'll feel it the year after that. It's critically important, but if you don't feel it, you don't know it. So I I think it's really about the way these fights have been structured, the way these bills have been structured. Uh, That has to do with how difficult it is to get anything through Congress these days. But the end result is we have a set of legislative successes that just weren't burned into people's consciousness in any way. Well, just when you call your big success and the Inflation Reduction Act and people see prices going up every time they're going to the stores, uh, it kind of undercuts your ability to champion that particular legislation. But speaking of Democrats fighting among themselves, I want to ask you about uh, the news of the day. 30 Democrats from the House Progressive Caucus signed a letter that was released on Monday Uh, calling for the Biden administration to pursue a new strategy in the war in Ukraine by negotiating with the Russians. Huge uproar over that. Democrats distancing themselves from that letter left and right. And now Congresswoman Jayapal has withdrawn the letter the day after she released it. Pretty embarrassing uh, on its face. But what does this tell us about where the Democratic Party is right now and make it and let me just ask a sort of larger question is when did it become off limits to have a healthy democratic small d debate about a major issue of foreign policy well i think it's always healthy to have a debate but i think what what you're seeing and hearing is that where the democratic party is is fully supporting 
uh, the Ukrainians in resisting the, the Russian invasion. And I think what uh, some of those members regretted, if you will, is that their letter was interpreted not as part of a debate, but as a softening of support for Ukraine. And that's not the message they wanted to send. It's not the message that uh, the Democratic Party wants to send. It's not the message the West should be sending either. Why did they sign the letter in the first place? Well, I think, again, I think they looked at it and said, we ought to have a healthy debate about this. But I think it was overinterpreted, misinterpreted. And I think the reason you're seeing uh, that withdrawal of the letter is because it was misinterpreted. I mean, also because it kind of undercut what had been a, a Democratic talking point just last week, hammering Kevin McCarthy for saying if Republicans take power, uh, there's not going to be a blank check to Ukraine. That's all McCarthy said, by the way. But, you know, that immediately got ratcheted up to, you know, Republicans are going to abandon uh, Ukraine. Uh, well, I mean, because the Russians, you know, the right? Republicans I mean, had a, it's the Republicans had a, were much more divided. Their caucus was had been much more divided on this issue. They have a strong isolationist wing and the Democrats had been much more united. So, <laughs> you know, that's why this looks pretty bad right now. But to Mike's point, is this uh, is the war in Ukraine anything? Is that just like internal DC chattering, or is it something that voters are actually voting about or, and caring about right now? Well, voters do care about it. I, I don't think it's playing a large role in this election. That's for sure. Let's talk about some of the individual uh, races, starting with some Senate races. The one that I'm interested in, uh, just because we're two weeks out and it's it's a lot closer than I expected it to be is the one in Ohio, Tim Ryan, uh, the Democrat who's in striking distance uh, of J.D. Vance in a state that Trump won, I think, both in 16 and 20 by like at least eight points. So what is Tim Ryan doing that's keeping him so close there? Do you think he has a chance of winning? And what lessons can Democrats take away from how he's uh, run that race? Sure. Well, first of all, Tim Ryan's a great candidate. Uh, and he's done a great job. He's done a great job in several respects. First of all, he's made it clear that he's an independent guy. He's not just a rubber stamp for the party. Second, he's focused on the economic, the core economic issues that are vital to Ohioans, vital to people around the country, but about jobs, about stealing those, about China and others stealing those jobs, stealing the technology and so on and so forth. So he's been really focused on working people, on the dignity of work, on the importance of creating jobs. And again, that's that's an Ohio focus, if there ever was one. Meanwhile, J.D. Vance may be a great writer, but he's proven to be a horrible candidate. He's all over the place on Trump. He's all over the place on a host of issues. He's not been an effective candidate at all. And that shows. And again, Mitch McConnell talked about the candidate quality being a problem for the Republicans in the Senate. J.D. Vance is just one example of that but he's an important example. The two are running pretty close to even in most of the polls. Vance is ahead by one or two. Ryan's ahead by one or two. Nobody thought that, uh, or I shouldn't say nobody, a few months ago, very few people other than Tim Ryan thought that, that he was going to be able to keep this race close. He has, and I will tell you, he's done it without a lot of help from the National Party. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, uh, a race that, you know, in the summer looked like John Fetterman was running away with is tightening. As I previously mentioned, it's tightening probably on the back of just an absolute tidal wave of ads regarding the crime issue. If you were giving uh, John Fetterman advice right now on what to do in the next two weeks, what would you get? What would you say to him? Well, look, 
John Theron's been a great candidate. And uh, so I'm, I'm not sure I'm in a position to give him advice, but the reality is John Fetterman is an unusual character. You know, I'm not a tattoo guy. I never was a tattoo guy, okay? It's just not me. But what does he have tattooed? The people who were killed in his community. It's hard to imagine somebody more committed on this issue of crime than, uh, than John Fetterman. And I think he has stories to tell. He has examples to use of his commitment to fighting crime and to uh, uh, reducing homicides and so on. But he has a much broader message, too, about working people, about finally representing people who have been unrepresented in Washington for many years in Pennsylvania and, frankly, around the country. And there are very few people, blue-collar people, are really the most underrepresented segment in the United States Congress, certainly in the United States Senate. And John Fetterman has a chance to begin to correct that. I think that's an important part of his message. So gaming out the other big Senate races, uh, Wisconsin, Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona, Nevada, seem, uh, Nevada. Sorry, should have mentioned that first, actually. Tell us how you um, how you see them shaping up at this point. Well, I mean, each of them are, you know, have their own dynamic. But the bottom line is, again, if you'd asked people a year ago, they would have told you maybe two or three of those races would have been in play. You just ticked off probably six or seven races that are very much in play to this moment. Again, we talked about Tim Ryan, who's kept that in play largely on his own. Sherry Beasley uh, in North Carolina has kept that state in play largely on her own. She's a former chief justice of the Supreme Court, African-American woman running neck and neck with, uh, with uh, Bud. Uh, Bud is one of the worst candidates in the country. Cortez Massow in, uh, uh, in Nevada, Latina, uh, obviously a former attorney general, someone who's done a huge amount for the state, running against Adam Laxalt. Adam Laxalt is one of the few candidates in the country. There is more he, There is more than one, but he's one of the very few candidates in the country whose entire family signed a letter saying, please don't vote for our family member. He's terrible. Okay, that doesn't happen very often. What's and, that all about, by the way? Well, his family thinks he's an idiot. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, look, there, there's a... An evaluation of his by his law firm leaked a few years ago. His law firm said he was not a competent attorney, and he became attorney general of Nevada. <laughs> I mean, this guy is just not uh, doesn't have it on the ball. But it's a closely balanced state, evenly balanced state. Laxalt certainly has a chance of winning. There's no question about that. It is a very very competitive race. Will be to the end. You know, Mark Kelly. You mentioned in Arizona. Fantastic candidate. He's been a fantastic senator, fantastic astronaut. And I think people thought that race was going to be closer. Kelly, I wouldn't say he's put it away uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but he's in a much stronger position, I think, than people thought he would have been uh, again a year or so ago. Maggie Hassan as well. Again, I don't think anybody thinks that race is put away, but running against one of the worst candidates on the Republican side, lowest quality. And she's, again, uh, doing pretty well at this stage and, again, better than I think most people would have expected uh, months ago. And that's true of most of these Democrats. I mean, the fact is, on the Senate side, uh, there are more seats in play than people expected, and there are more Democrats doing well than Democrats expected. So bottom line, Mark, do you think the Democrats have a good shot of holding on to the Senate, even if it's a slim margin? I do. I do. 
And you mentioned Arizona. I wanted to ask about some of the marquee gubernatorial races um, and the uh, Kerry Lake-Katie Hobbs race as one that everyone is talking about. Kerry Lake is clearly having a moment in the last uh, week or two. People have discovered that she's a pretty effective candidate. And by contrast, uh, Katie Hobbs, I think, has run a pretty lackluster campaign. First of all, give us your assessment of that race. But the second question is, um, you talked about Mark Kelly and being in the lead, but if, if Carrie Lake wins that race, and if she wins it by a few points, does she have coattails that could, that, that could help uh, Blake Master? So um, in terms of uh, where the race is, I have to agree with your assessment of both candidates. Um, the, uh, in terms of Carrie Lake's coattails, I, I think Arizona voters are perfectly capable of splitting their tickets. Most won't, but enough will, uh, I think, that... Uh, Regardless of what happens in the gubernatorial race, I think Kelly will end up winning. Will the governor's race have some impact? It might, but uh, very difficult to be able to say that with any precision. Mm -hmm. And your outlook on the House right now? Well, look, I think Democrats still have a chance to hold the House, but I think the greater likelihood is the Republicans will uh, will take the House. It doesn't take much. You know, the average, on, on average, the party in power in the White House has lost 27 seats in the last 19 midterms since World War II. So losing five seats could actually be a very good night for Democrats based on the historical record. But losing five seats is enough to, to change uh, change control. So if, if you had to bet money, probably bet it on the Republicans, but you wouldn't have to bet, want to have to bet a lot. I mean, would you, I mean, is 20 seats the likely um, uh, Republican pickup at this point? Well, let's put it this way. You, you can find analyses that will tell you Democrats are going to lose 35 seats. You can find analyses that say Democrats are going to lose 20 seats. You can find analyses that say Democrats are going to lose four seats. You can find anything you want. It's really hard to know at this point, with again, with any kind of precision. There's a lot of data that points us in slightly different directions. But those slightly different directions are pretty big when you get to the difference between 20 and 30 seats. So going into 2022, a lot of people were uh, concerned or thinking about the impact of redistricting on the composition of the House. And the kind of current conventional wisdom is that Republicans in their states succeeded in gerrymandering or in partisan gerrymandering a lot of seats to help them kind of gain a permanent structural advantage in capturing the House of Representatives, while Democrats uh, were unable to kind of engage in partisan gerrymandering. And so there are more toss-up seats now in states like New York and California than there might have been otherwise. Well, not that they didn't try in New York. They got shot down by exactly. the courts. Exactly. They got, they got right. shut down yeah. by the courts. Not succeeding, not, not for want of effort. What is your assessment of the extent to which redistricting is playing out in this election and whether or not as a result of this round of redistricting, the uh, House of Representatives has a, a sort of a baked-in Republican slant for the next decade? Well, first of all, some of these places are not done with redistricting because of the courts. Um, and they're going to be revisiting this again next year before the next election for the next House election. So it's hard to even say what the net impact of redistricting is since it's not finished. But look, I think you have to say that Republicans netted themselves a few seats in redistricting in the redistricting process. They made it harder for Democrats in a, in a slightly larger number of seats. Uh, enough to change the outcome. We don't know yet, but it could have been enough to uh, to change the outcome. Democrats fought a good fight and lost in some places, won in others. But in, in the net, the Republicans, I think, came out at least slightly better off as a result of redistricting. 
again, a lot of this depends on how you measure it. I think in the net, they made it harder for more Democrats than we than Democrats made it for Republicans. I'm curious when when we get the results uh, in, in these elections, what will you be looking at in particular uh, as as some indication as to what might um, happen um, in the presidential election? I, I read an op-ed piece uh, that you wrote in the Hill, I think, a few months back, uh, in which you actually looked at the history of midterms to see what impact they have on on the presidential two years later, and I. I think you concluded that they generally have uh, almost no impact, right? Zero. There is zero relationship between what happens in a midterm and what happens in the next general election. And I can guarantee you on election night, I've been there in every news studio around the country at a certain <laughs> point, the, the conversation is going to turn from what happened in this election to what it tells you about the presidential election in 2024. And the answer is it tells you absolutely nothing about 2024. Just think of one example. The worst midterm shown by a president, Barack Obama, went on, lost 63 House seats, went on to win the general election two years later convincingly. There is, again, historically, there's okay, no but relationship. Aren't there, uh, you know, kind of more subtle things like, you know, vote, voting trends uh, that you might, I mean, aren't there still bellwether races where you, you look at a particular race and you see how, you know, one demographic has shifted from one party to the other? I mean, those kinds of things that that uh, uh, that you might glean from the results? Well, you might look at long-term voting trends and say, you know, where there are issues or concerns or so on and so forth with particular groups. But to sort of say, what, what you can't say is Democrats fared poorly this year they're going to do well in the, in 2024, right. they're going to do poorly right. in 2024, or vice versa. Democrats did well in 2022, therefore we're going to do well in 2024. It just doesn't work that way at all. Are there groups you can look at? Are there states you can look at? Are there places where you can see softening or hardening? The answer is yes, but the truth is much of that is few and far between, and a lot of it is very, very highly context-dependent. All right, that said... The day after Election Day, there's going to be one conversation among Democrats, and that's going to be, is Biden running for re-election? And, you know, right now it's not a subject any Democrats want to touch publicly, but he remains underwater in the approval polls, you know, low to mid 40s. If conventional wisdom is right and the Republicans do retake the House, that's going to make it extremely difficult to get anything passed in his last two years. I suspect there's going to be a lot of pressure to hear something from Biden on this issue very soon. And even if he does decide to run, will there be a serious Democratic challenger to him? Look, I, my, my working assumption is that if the president feels strong enough, healthy enough to run, he will. And that if he does, he's not going to be opposed in a serious way. Uh, in the in the in the primary, I, I think most of the people who've talked about running, uh, or who have been talked about uh, running, have said that they would not run against him. I think they'd be foolish to do so, and I don't think they will. But I think, you know, I, I agree with you. At some point, he's going to have to sort of definitively answer the question. At some point, isn't that some point very soon after election day? Well, yeah, maybe after the holidays. I don't, I don't, I don't know that there's a demand to do it on November 9th. After the holidays, like the December Christmas holidays. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And you expect he will at this point run for re-election? 
I expect as if, if he feels healthy enough to do so, he will. And I assume he feels healthy enough to do so at the moment. Yeah. A lot of people were watching that clip of the Jonathan Capehart interview in which he appeared to nod off in the middle of answering this very question. So you've known the vice president or the president, I should say, for a long time. I've known him for a long time. I've interviewed him and never had him nod off in the middle of an interview. Well, and he didn't really nod off. I mean, like, yeah. I don't think he's dramatically different from the way he's been in the past. He's a he's an unusual character, and and uh, he is how he is. But again, I think if he feels capable, he's going to run, and I have every reason to believe that he feels capable. Well, <laughs> one we you know we'll all be waiting to see. I mean, it is remarkable. I remember over the summer. New York Times, Peter Baker, front page story, Democrats anxious about whether Biden can run again, has the stamina to run again, um, has the mental acuity to run again. Nobody's saying that now. It's, you know, clearly a, a few legislative successes can make a difference. Um, but it doesn't, you know, change the, the, the fundamentals, which is uh, he's about to be an octogenarian. And um, we've never had an octogenarian president. Well, right, but so is his opponent, likely opponent. Right, and by the way, well, you, <laughs> that's a whole other question about Trump. But what do you make of the head-to-head -head between the two of them, which consistently show, you know, Trump competitive in a race against Biden? Um, we've seen that in statewide polls for some time now. Right, and when we see polls with uh, with the president ahead, look, the reality is. We, we've seen this race, too. We know it's a pretty close race. And uh, if it happens again, it's going to be a pretty close race again. That's the division in the country. Just before we go, I want to follow up on uh, you, you mentioned the, the abortion, the Hobbes decision. You said that it's it's you know playing in um, individual races. Uh, but there was a sense that after the decision, you know, you saw the you saw the the statewide vote in Kansas to retain abortion. You saw you know, multiple special elections uh, where Democrats were overperforming, including that, you know, sort of shocker. And I think it was what New York's 19th, where uh, Pat Ryan made a abortion um, his signature cause. And then the polling suggested that abortion started to really sort of fade as a as a you know predominant issue uh, behind inflation, you know, g gas prices, crime. Just in terms of the overall impact of abortion in these uh, midterms, uh, how significant do you think? And I'm not talking about just you know short individual races here and there, but overall, how su uh, significant an issue do you think it will be? To what extent do you think it's going to? you know, really drive uh, Democratic turnout? Um, how is it going to play in your view? Look, I, I think there are very few issues. I mean, issues are sort of the accepted language of politics. But the reality is very few campaigns, very few races are won on, or lost on some particular issue. The reality is the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade has had more impact on this election than just about any other issue at just about any other time. So the impact is huge. Will it be enough to turn every race? Not necessarily. But has it had a very substantial impact? The answer is yes. Will it have a very substantial impact on the ultimate outcome? Yes. The reality is Democrats would not be in position to do well at all, let's put it that way, were it not for this Dobbs decision. 
if I can really quickly before we drill down on that uh, in terms of its impact, is is its impact just in terms of uh, kind of writ large motivating the electorate or has it altered the composition of the electorate itself? Well, we, we don't know that for sure yet. Uh, and we won't till frankly, many, many months after the election. But I think a couple of things are true. First of all, we have seen in some states a change in the composition of the electorate through registration. The reality is, though, that most people who are voting are already registered. So the new registrants change the composition only in a relatively small way because there are relatively few of them compared to the sort of standing electorate. But it's also changed people's attitudes. There are independents and Republicans who are voting against Republicans today because those Republicans want to make abortion illegal, even in cases of rape, incest, and danger to the mother's health. It's a red line for them. It's always been a red line, but they never thought it was a realistic possibility before. Even if they had that, even if the Republican had that position, people said to themselves, okay, that may be their view. There's nothing they can do about it because the Supreme Court's decided this. When the Supreme Court undecided this, when the Supreme Court reversed itself, all of a sudden, every candidate's view on abortion became highly relevant. They're able to determine what happens at a federal level, what happens at a state level. People understand that, and it's affecting their voting behavior like never before. Well, we will see soon enough, and um, either your analysis will be spot on um, or it won't. But Mark, I want to thank you uh, for sharing, and uh, we will have you back and uh, hold you accountable. I look forward to that. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Mark. The Accountability Podcast. I hope the questioners are held accountable, too. Yeah, <laughs> good point. Oh, we, did, we, we have done it. We have done it to Mike a few good, times. Good. Okay. <laughs> okay. Talk to you later. All right, we've now got with us our Republican Georgia consultant for Skullduggery, Brian Robinson. Brian, welcome back to Skullduggery. Great to be back with you guys. So uh, Georgia looks like it once again could be the center of the political universe, certainly a key state in these upcoming midterms. you got two big statewide races that everybody is watching, Warnock Walker in the Senate, Kemp Abrams in the governor's race. How's it looking to you right now? Well, let's start with the state level races. Kemp certainly seems to be in great shape right now. I mean, there was a left-leaning organization's poll that came out over the weekend that had him up by 10 points. Now, I don't think anybody in Georgia is winning by 10 points. There's also a third-party candidate in there who kind of made a bit of a, how should I say, a behind of himself in the debate last week. It got a lot of attention, but he was just a kind of a jerk the entire time. So he's in an X-factor but I do think that Kemp can get over the 50 plus one mark um, in two weeks and will. And he will carry with him the down ballot folks as well. Setting aside Brad Raffensperger, who doesn't need Brian Kemp's coattails, right? I mean, he's kind of his own brand. He's a big. He'll probably be the number one vote getter uh, yeah. on election day, right? No, he should state. be. He should yeah. be. And the only way that that doesn't happen, I had a Democrat tell me this yesterday, actually is one, you may have a few Republicans who are still a little, you know, leery of him but because of 2020 or think that he fought Trump too much and who just skipped the line. They won't vote for B. Win, his very leftist opponent, but they'll skip it. And a lot of Democrats aren't going to vote for the state school superintendent 
uh, nominee because she's been too pro school choice through the years. And so Democrats may make the Republican school board, I mean, school superintendent person, the highest vote getter because uh, of the or highest percentage because they want to support their candidate. But and then you got the, the, the Senate race and it looks like Herschel got over the bar in the debate. He answered the concerns of a lot of Republicans who needed some convincing. He needed to look competent and coherent and, and drive a message. And he did. He drove a message. Warnock owns Joe Biden's record, and he did it consistently. He did it with skill that I think shocked a lot of people, including me, frankly. And it may be enough. It should be enough to force a runoff. Right. And we should point out for uh, for some of our listeners that in Georgia, you need to get over the 50-point yeah. mark to avoid a runoff. But if, he, if Walker doesn't and neither gets 50 uh, points or more, then you've got, what, three a three-week runoff now? It's short. Four weeks. Where it was. Four weeks. It's okay. Four, yes. Thank okay. God. And, it's no longer and, nine weeks. But as my understanding is uh, from previous races that the dynamic often changes in Georgia when there is a runoff because certain people are more likely to come out or not during that runoff period. If there's a runoff, who does the advantage go to um, in in the Warnock-Walker race? I think we're going to have to wait to see what the environment is on November the 9th. I mean, have the Democrats maintain control of the Senate, have Republicans taking control of the Senate, does control of the Senate come down to Georgia once right, again, right. which could very well be the case. <laughs> it would be know? pretty mind-boggling if it does. Oh, it'd be absolutely nuts to do that, you know, within you know 24 months. It's it's crazy. And I'd imagine hundreds of millions of dollars will be spent in that four-week period if it does come down to control of the Senate. And so I, I think we have to wait to see. I really thought two years ago Biden had won and control of the Senate was on the line, I thought, you know, the Democrats are going to be fat and happy. They're going to be, they're content. They got what they wanted. They got rid of Trump. That was all they cared about. And Republicans are going to be scared and motivated. And what happened? I mean, when you go tell them, hey, your vote might not count or the machine's going to change it, you people stay home. And so we, uh, Republicans gave the Democrats two seats in the Senate. So far in the election, I suppose early voting has already started. What is it showing in Georgia? Is there a huge turnout? Is there any particular demographic that's showing up more or less at this stage of the game? Victoria, we are having historic turnout. I mean, for a midterm, it is almost double what it was back in 2018 when we had a pretty high profile governor's race back then. This has been tracking along presidential turnout levels. Now, it's a little less than 2020, so it's not exactly there, but it's much closer to that than it is to our normal midterm. So what we have seen has fit the pattern we've seen in recent cycles, which is in the early days, you have this huge turnout of Black voters. They make up a, uh, way, they're way overrepresented uh, from their percentage of the population and the electorate on those in those early days. And then you see it begin to even out. Yeah, as each day passes by. So we're getting closer to normal turnout, racial dynamics at, at this juncture. That'll continue to happen. Another thing that's happening is you may continue to see a Democratic advantage in the early vote because so many Republicans in the last two years have decided they're going to be election day voters from now on. Like, like something happened back in two years ago where they, they thought like that's the only legitimate day to go vote. Now I think that's really, really bad thinking and not good for the party in the long term around here because you want to take advantage of as many opportunities as possible to bank those votes. 
But I do think you'll see a huge Republican turnout on Election Day. Also, Victoria, big, big turnout amongst the over 65s, which you have to assume probably benefits the Republicans here. The over 65s not only uh, tend to lean more conservative, it's also the whitest demographic in a state that is now majority minority. So let's talk about the Senate race, because it could well determine who controls uh, the United States Senate for the next two years. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, Walker did much better than anybody anticipated in that debate, although we should acknowledge the bar was really low for him, given his uh, troubles on the campaign staff and putting a coherent sentence together. But that said, there are a few wild cards out there, and one big one is, is Donald Trump going to come to Georgia in the next two weeks and campaign for Herschel Walker? And if so, how is that going to play? I don't think he will. Michael. Really? No, I don't, I don't think he will. Because I mean, he anointed Herschel Walker as the Senate candidate. He's yeah, he encouraged Herschel Walker. Look, yeah. <laughs> Herschel Walker would not be the Republican candidate for Senate had it not been for Donald Trump. He may not have run, but he he's a he's a unicorn. He doesn't need Donald Trump. A lot of these you know candidates needed Donald Trump to step in. I mean, uh, Herschel Walker has been this iconic hero in my life. I'm 47 years old since I was five. Was when we won the national championship. He, he's got special status here that you really just you can't attach him to to Trump. It, it's as you can almost anybody else in politics. He's his own thing, and. As soon as she got in, that was kind of that. And I, from what I'm told in, in my circles, you know, the polling shows that a Trump rally here would hurt the Walker campaign in Georgia. You know, we had two rallies back in 2020, 2021, those candidates were on the lose. That hasn't really changed. So Georgia's just this outlier on that. And so I think that that data has been passed along. And um, so I, I would be surprised if, if there is a rally. Just one quick follow up on that. Yesterday, Walker was campaigning with Marjorie Taylor Greene, the ultimate MAGA congresswoman in Northwest Georgia. To those who say Walker has to reach out to people in the middle, persuadables, independents, does that help him? Here's the thing. It depends. It depends on this. Do Democrats choose that? and put money behind that message and go tell the rest of Georgia, particularly tell suburban Atlanta, hey, he's campaigning with Marjorie Taylor Greene. We'll see if they think that's an effective message. If they don't do that, very few people are gonna know. Let me tell you about why Greene is interesting here. So she represents Northwest Georgia, kind of the Alabama line, Tennessee line, that, that corner. And that is the part of the state where the most Republicans didn't come back out for the runoff in the 2021 Senate runoffs. So huge drop off because that was where the message that your vote's not going to count really obviously made, had the most impact. So those voters, however, particularly those who didn't come back out because they thought that, they really love Marjorie Taylor Greene. I don't know if you saw the circus uh, on Showtime this Sunday where they featured Marjorie Taylor Greene, went to her district, interviewed her. It was really it was fascinating. But there's a huge level of support for her in that district. And if you want to tell them your vote's going to count, it's super important for you to show up. She's a pretty good messenger for you in that part of the state. It is, she's got some downsides in other parts, but up there, 
QLT on water. We should move on to Kemp Abrams in a second, but just before, one last question on the Walker-Warnock race. I'm curious um, how you assess Warnock's campaign, because it feels to me like he's been playing, you know, kind of a, a four corners defense. I know that's a that's a North Carolina sports metaphor, not a Georgia sports metaphor. But <laughs> what do you think of 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 his campaign? I mean, I was kind of struck, particularly like looking back after the debate, where I don't think he did as well as I mean, Walker definitely got over the bar. I don't think I don't think Warnock did as well as he as he should have. Absolutely. But overall, what's your assessment of of that campaign? I have a lot of opinions on this because uh, uh, he, he's such a great performer, right? And say, so, and, and in that, you know, his ads are still, you know, uh, the, you see that that star quality that he has, that guy who's trained in this pulpit all these years, as good to camera as any politician I've ever seen in Georgia. He's got a great team around him. I'll tell you, one of the great, best things he's done for his campaign is his constituent services staff are so proactive and so responsive hmm. that when you go out and speak to stakeholder groups in Georgia, all of them have had a positive experience. And, and I see it consistently. I give speeches all over the place and I, I get that feedback. You know, look, I'm not a Democrat, but by God, we had this issue and they were on it, right? And they, and so he's got some of that stuff. That's the advantage of incumbency that he's he's got some of that. I just don't think that he's driven a, a fairly effective message in, in this environment. And I don't know, maybe it's not his fault, but if you live in Georgia, you've seen this ad that the Democrats have put up and it's Herschel Walker's first wife talking about him putting a gun to her head. We've seen it a million times. I mean, they keep pouring money behind this message and it's never moved the needle. We've had stasis for months. It's not working, but they stuck with it. And I don't understand it. They needed to pivot to something else. I don't have the answer to what it is, but what they're doing isn't working by all the data that we have. When it comes to the debate, I think a lot of Democrats thought this is going to be the knockout blow. I mean, this is, you know, Rocky is going to just, you know, give him a knock to the head and he's going to fall to the, to the mat. And it didn't happen. I, as much respect as I had for him as a orator, I don't have a lot of respect for him as a debater. He wasn't even very good in the Leffler debate two years ago, where she robotically called him a radical socialist 12 times in a 30-minute period. He never drove a message against her. He was on defense the whole time. He was explaining the whole time. That's not what you do. Walker prosecuted the case against Warnock, and Warnock just didn't handle it very well. And he looked extreme, too. When it got to the abortion issue, which most Republicans right here just aren't talking about, if they can help it, right? It's just, it's not our, our winning issue. Like Herschel leaned into it and looked authentic. Now, people who didn't like it weren't going to vote for him anyway. But why not got the question, what would you do about limits? Is there any time in, in a pregnancy where, you know, the law should say, no, not, not to this. He refused to answer it. And he looked so extreme. Now, is the Republican position here, would that ever win in a referendum on the ballot? No, it wouldn't. But neither would nine-month abortions either. I mean, so Warnock had a chance to claim the middle and decided to embrace the left. And it was just a huge mistake, in my opinion. And his, his answer about Biden, you're refusing to say that he supports Biden, that kind of stuff, is too clever by half, right? Who, who is he getting with that, with that dance, right? Where Walker goes out there and is like, yeah, Donald Trump's my ally. 
He just owns it. He leans into it. And it's authentic. Let's talk about the money in the race with uh, Warnock, Stacey Abrams, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and a variety of candidates. You have probably some of the most skillful fundraisers in America for political fundraising. How much money is pouring into Georgia right now? And where is that money coming from? Well, we have a little bit of an indication that particularly with Warnock and Abrams, a, a huge amount is coming out of New York State and California, or maybe more than is coming out of Georgia. So they have established a national fundraising base, which is very impressive. And Warnock's ability to bring in the money he has with the federal limits is absolutely incredible. Give him credit. He's worked intensely hard to get to the amount of money he has. I think by the end of the day, it'll be over $300 million dollars. That, that is spent here in a state of 11 million people. And if we get into the runoff, I mean, just, you know, that'll blow the top off of that. So it's a huge amount of money. And I put it in context, in 2014, which is the last gubernatorial race I did in a general election, uh, you know, the entire incumbent governor's campaign budget was about 14, $15 million. Abrams blows to that every month, <laughs> you know, I and mean, it, it has all year. I mean, she's been spending at that rate uh, all year long. I think she's spending about two and a half million dollars a week on TV alone. So it's an astonishing amount of money. And wh- where is Herschel Walker's money coming from? You know, I, I don't have a great answer for that, but a lot of it is uh, small dollar donors here. It's less of a national fundraising base. And, you know, and frankly, he hasn't raised nearly as much as Warnock. So it's not really apples for to apples as far as that goes. He has raised less and it has been has relied somewhat more on outside money. Uh, look, not too long ago, Stacey Abrams was a rock star, at least in New York and Hollywood circles. She was getting uh, incredible press, uh, you know, came very close to beating Kemp last time, refused to famously refused to concede, claimed it was uh, voter suppression that cost her the election. She is now running consistently behind Brian Kemp in all the polls by a lot more than she lost in 2018. What explains that? And I want to ask in particular about two big blows she had in the last couple of weeks. One, losing, you know, a wipeout in the fair fight lawsuit alleging voter suppression in 2018. The Obama appointed judge rejected every single one of fair fights claims. And then the Politico story this week that her campaign chairman, Allegra Lawrence Hardy, was paid over $9 million in legal fees to prosecute well, her, her that firm. case. Her firm. her firm. Her firm. It's a small firm. But in any case, a lot of money going to her campaign chairman in what turned out to be a complete rout of a, uh, a legal case. How much has that hurt her? Michael, I'm going to send you a check as a thank you note for uh, <laughs> putting this ball uh, on, on the tee for me. Uh, <laughs> the... Uh, it's been devastating because it's undermined her entire brand. She has gone around the country and become the, literally the president of the United Earth on Star Trek. Is She's the democratic response to the president for the State of the Union as a non-office holder. I mean, she's on the cover of magazines and on The View and Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon, blah, blah, blah. I mean, she's a star. She's a celebrity. 
Again, the president of the United Earth on Star Trek, for whatever that's worth. It seems like a big deal to me, right? <laughs> a little better than being governor of Georgia, I yeah, think. Yeah, you're saying it's a much bigger footprint. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and she's built this brand around have, fighting voter suppression, and the election was stolen from me in 2018. And she said thousands of voters were denied the right to vote in 2018, and that's why she lost. And then they went to court. And you know how many of those thousands of voters they, they brought before Judge Jones? Zero. They couldn't find any because they don't exist. And as I've been saying for four years, if you think there's one person out there who's a legal voter who wasn't allowed to vote, you think that they wouldn't be a celebrity in New York Times magazine by now? Of course they would be. They'd be cover models. You know, they would love to find that person. They don't exist. It's, it's all, all house of cards and it's begun to crumble. I'll say about the $9 million that her campaign chairman got from Fair Fight for this lawsuit that they lost spectacularly. That's just the first two years of the lawsuit. We don't have the, the information yet on the, the last two years. So that number is actually going to be significantly higher than $9 million. They spent $25 million overall with their national fundraising base. The state in its victorious suit spent $6 million to give you some comparison of what the two sides were doing. The $6 million David slayed the $25 million Goliath in this uh, showdown. All right. I have a feeling Victoria may want to weigh in on this. All $25 million wasn't actually spent on the litigation, was it? That was my takeaway from the Politico article. If I'm I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. But that's what I I thought I read. So what do you think think is the right price tag for a piece of four-year litigation seeking to vindicate the right to vote and involving more than, you know, seven different law firms, multiple groups of experts, and more than 900 entries in a case? I have no idea what it, what it should be. And, I, and frankly, mm-hmm. I'm not offended by, by the amount. Whatever. It sounded like you were. No, I think their donors should be offended that they invested $25 million and got goose eggs. They, I think they need to start raising questions about the message that they've been sold. That is my underlying issue. So you don't think there's any voter suppression or any efforts in Georgia whatsoever to turn to to suppress the vote or to kind of keep people from being able to cast their votes? There is zero empirical evidence to back up those claims. And in no, fact, no, his, no history of that in Georgia at all. Oh, 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 are we going to 1962? Is that what well, we're going to look at? Well, I think we can probably go to 1979 or 1989 or 1999. I, I don't know what the cases were in, in those years. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, as, as Michael knows, uh, I was one of the people as a kill staffer who fought the renewal of the uh, 06 Voting Rights Act. And one thing that kept coming up is the ignorance about these issues nationwide. We kept getting told, of course, there's all these problems, all these problems. And we kept getting these examples from Wisconsin and Ohio, et cetera. And we're like, yeah, none of those are covered by the Voting Rights Act. Like, it's us who are singled out. If we still, If we still have a problem in Georgia, then the Voting Rights Act is a failure, right? No, the Voting Rights Act worked. We have got... 96% of Georgians registered today. That is an incredible number. And again, if there's oppression, bring them to me. I'll change my mind, right? Bring them to me. Abrams, Abrams went to court and couldn't produce a person. 
we should point out that Brian uh, uh, is at least partially responsible for one of the most controversial Supreme Court decisions in recent years. That's Shelby County, because uh, years before uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, authored that opinion, shooting down the what was it? Section five of the yes. Voting Rights Act uh, in southern states, uh, you were making the case uh, that Republicans ought to be advocating that back in the uh, 1990s. And um, at the time, most establishment Republicans didn't want to touch your position. Yeah, that's right. You kind of brought them around for better or worse, I think. You know, they'll well, be the court big, did. <laughs> yeah. <big> spirited <laughs> debate about that. Well, better for worse politically, I, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, what we were saying was right. One, being Brian Tyson, who was one of the state's lawyers actually in this Fahrenheit case, he and I were Hill staffers for Congressman Westmoreland. And we kept saying, look, Section 5 is unconstitutional 50 years later. It, you know, it was an emergency measure where the federal government coming in and telling Georgia what to do. And you can't prove that Georgia's the bad actor compared to nine covered states. I mean, this is it's clear. And we were right. And so the cool thing was in that case went to the Supreme Court because we had been the only people saying that. I'm listening on that audio and the lawyers are using my words, you know, which was which was an awesome, awesome experience. And we won. We were right. But Brian, to be fair, um, that decision did open the door for a lot of voter restricting measures that were passed by state legislatures across the country, many of which went beyond what Georgia had actually done. And how many of those states, a lot of those states weren't covered by Section 5 to begin with. This is kind of where the argument breaks. Well, in southern states, they certainly were. Well, yes, they were. But a lot of these are are happening in non-covered states. So what's the difference? You know? What's the difference? And all of the accusations about Georgia that made us lose the all-star game last year, for example, Jim Crow 2.0, Jim Eagle, as Joe Biden called it, none of that's borne out. We've had nothing but record turnout. And I don't just mean raw numbers because we've grown. We've had record turnout in percentages. So more people are participating in the process. And those claiming voter suppression cannot produce anyone to counteract my narrative, but my narrative is record turnout and uh, 96% registration. I got a pretty good story to tell. I'm going to win this. So, Brian, assuming Kemp does win, and if it's a decisive victory, if it doesn't go to a runoff, I think I asked you this once before, but I'm curious what you think now. You're going to start hearing people touting Kemp as a, as a national political figure. Do you think, I think you've said in the past that you don't think he has any national ambitions, that he's not someone who would, who, who has any interest in actually running for president. You still think that's the case? Well, you know, the interesting thing is there's, there's new information on this. Before, Kemp was in a position where he, he was on unsteady ground in his own party, had Trump coming after him, had a former U.S. senator primarying him. Uh, he, he, had a lot, he had a lot on his plate. And then it came out 75% win beating Trump and has kind of won the goodwill of the middle because he stood up to Trump because he was the first to reopen the economy, not Ron DeSantis, it was Brian Kemp. And you know, a lot of small business people, including a lot of minority voters here, are greatly appreciative of the stuff that he did on those issues, particularly like keeping schools open as much as possible. So 
he's done these things to win the middle here. And this is somebody who was seen and portrayed as this creature of the far right, someone who held a gun on a kid in a, in a TV ad in 2018 and talked about putting illegals in his truck and taking them to Mexico himself. Uh, and he's now this guy who's, who's claimed the middle. It's a pretty significant movement there in four years. And what's different, what's new here is Abrams is claiming she won't run for president in 2024 if she wins the governorship. And Kemp's no longer answering that question. Really? So obviously it is somewhere in the back of his mind that he's going to keep his options open. I don't know. He does not strike me at, in in this age of celebrity politics and larger than life figures for better or worse. And we've been certainly plagued by worse uh, in recent years. I, Kemp doesn't seem to, you know, I, I don't see how he would cut through or stand up uh, in a national presidential contest. Yeah, I hear you. And I, and, I, and I get what you're saying, uh, particularly when so much of what he's known for here and love for here, DeSantis has sort of, you know, claimed that mantle to some degree. And it has a much larger national profile and media profile than Brian Kemp does. Where Brian Kemp is probably better than DeSantis is he's what, you know, my friends call a red solo cup guy. Like he's the, he's the kind of guy you want to sit around a keg with at a football tailgate, you know, with a red solo cup, drinking beer before going to see the dogs. And, and he's just somebody you would think would just be a good time, you know, and, but that doesn't always translate onto, onto screen with a, you know, with a Warnock skill set. And by the way, I mean, Mike, do you see Glenn Youngkin as a, as a celebrity? I mean, is he something, he's not someone who you would expect would break through in, in, Maybe in our not, current but, culture. But he won, he won big in a, in a purple state, which, you know, maybe Kemp will replicate this time and put him on the national stage. But um, uh, we'll see. Point. We'll see. Uh, anyway, uh, just to wrap up here, Brian, give us so bottom line. You think Kemp wins with no runoff and uh, Warner Walker put you on the spot right now. What do you say? I think that if Kemp gets somewhere around 53%, that counts as a landslide in Georgia today. Yeah, I mean, it would be that's camp mind right. mind boggling to win by that much because it would it wouldn't it wouldn't be fifty three forty seven it would you know it'd be more like fifty three forty four forty five because of the, the third party guy and that's a huge spread here. I mean, we've been doing twelve thousand vote margins of late. If you if you recall, we get, we're kind of famous for that. So that would be a blowout, and that would definitely put him on the national stage as a Republican who can appeal not only to the middle but to a diverse audience. You cannot get to 53% in Georgia without getting a lot of non-white votes. We are now a majority minority state. And so it will prove that this guy is out there sort of uh, realigning the partisan structures here in this state by bringing in minority voters. I was asking your bottom line on Warnock Walker, though. Yeah, runoff is going to runoff. It's going to a runoff. Yeah. Which means uh, you guys will once again... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> be the yeah, center be of uh, world attention. And, you'll, and we'll That's have you right. back on the podcast. <laughs> on Skullduggery. Sure. All right. So, Brian, last question. You know, more than usual, uh, people are interested in, in down-ballot races, partly because of all these Secretary of State races and who will control the election infrastructure. But there's an interesting one in Georgia, which is the uh, lieutenant governor's race. That's Charlie Bailey. 
a former assistant DA in the Fulton County DA's office who worked closely uh, with Fonnie Willis, who is investigating Donald Trump. And then Burt Jones is the Republican who uh, was a so-called fake elector and received a target letter from the grand jury down there. So tell us whether you think Charlie Bailey has any chance of upsetting Burt Jones because of uh, because of that issue or others. Highly, highly, highly doubtful. The the fake elector issue is one that in Georgia could be devastating or hurtful, at least, if a lot of money was put behind it. And that was what the Democrats focused on. But that would require them to spend money in a campaign that they don't, they don't really care about because the lieutenant governor has no constitutional power in Georgia. His or her power depends on the Senate making the rules that empower them. And so a Republican Senate, which it will be, would just change the rules. And so a Democratic LG would, would be a figurehead who, who sits in an office, kind of like, you know, maybe cut some ribbons like King Charles. And that's kind of kind of the role that they play. And so Democrats don't have a lot at stake in that in that race. If they put money behind that fake elector message, it, Georgians have rejected the fake elector. I mean, they, they, they've rejected the uh, election denialism much more so than any. And, and in fact, the, the, the sitting lieutenant governor, yeah. Jeff Duncan, who's a Republican, refused to endorse uh, uh, yeah, Burt yeah, Jones. Yeah. Which is sort of interesting. Yeah, but, he, but he's also attacked Herschel Walker too. I mean, he's just kind of gone up and down the line. He's uh, I'm not sure who he's appealing to with with this stuff, other than Democrats who wouldn't have anything to do with him because he's a conservative uh, on a lot of issues. Uh, but you know, Burt has not made any mistakes in this campaign, and he's done some strategically interesting things. He made a play for the middle when asked about uh, abortion issues, like he really talks up the exceptions in our law, which is not what the hardest core pro-life people do. When asked, you know, if the Supreme Court did away with the same-sex marriage ruling, should Georgia go back to banning same-sex marriage? And he said, no, that we shouldn't do that. I mean, those are some plays for the middle and I think pretty smart in a purple state. All right, uh, Brian, thanks a lot. Uh, until next time. Thanks, guys. Enjoy being with you.